Chapter 18 of Will Warburton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sabrina Jazz Ainsworth. Will Warburton by George Gissing. Chapter 18. Another week went by. Warburton was still living in the same restless way, but did not wear quite so gloomy a countenance. Now and then he looked almost cheerful. That was the case when one morning he received a letter from Sherwood. Godfrey wrote that no sooner had he arrived at his relatives in North Wales than he was seized with a violent liver attack, which for some days prostrated him. He was now recovering, and, better news still, had succeeded in borrowing a couple of hundred pounds. Half of this sum he sent to Warburton. The other half he begged to be allowed to retain, as he had what might prove a very fruitful idea for the use of the money. Details presently. To this letter Will immediately replied at some length. The cheque he paid into his account, which thus reached a total of more than six hundred pounds. A few days later, after breakfast as usual, he let his servant clear the table, then said with a peculiar smile, "'I want to have a little talk with you, Mrs. Hopper. Please sit down.' To seat herself in her master's present went against all Mrs. Hopper's ideas of propriety. Seeing her hesitate, Will pointed steadily to a chair, and the good woman, much flurried, placed herself on the edge of it. "'You have noticed,' Warburton resumed, "'that I haven't been quite myself lately. There was a good reason for it. I've had a misfortune in business. All my plans are changed. I shall have to begin quite a new life, a different life altogether from the one I have led till now.' Mrs. Hopper seemed to have a sudden pain in the side. She groaned under her breath, staring at the speaker pitifully. "'There's no need to talk about it, you know,' Will went on with a friendly nod. I tell you because I'm thinking of going into business in which your brother-in-law could help me, if he cares to. He paused. Mrs. Hopper kept her wide eyes on him. Old Chinnell will be very glad to hear of it, sir. What was I saying? Of course, I don't mean he'll be glad you've had misfortune, sir, and I'm that sorry to hear it, I can't tell you. But it does just happen as he's out of work, through that nasty temper of his. Not, she corrected herself hastily, as I ought to call him nasty-tempered, with a good employer, I'm sure he'd never get into no trouble at all. Does he still wish to get back into the grocery business? He'd be only too glad, sir. But, of course, any places you offered him, well, it happens, said Warburton, that it is the grocery business I'm thinking about. You, sir, gasped Mrs. Hopper, I think I shall take box on shop. You, sir, take a grocer's shop. "'You mean you'd put Orchin in to manage it?' "'No, I don't, Mrs. Hopper,' replied Will, smiling mechanically. "'I have more than my own living to earn. "'Other people are dependent upon me, "'so I must make as much money as possible. "'I can't afford to pay a manager. "'I shall go behind the counter myself, "'and Orchin, if he cares for the place, shall be my assistant.' "'The good woman could find no words to express her astonishment. "'Suppose you have a word with Orchin and send him to me this evening.' I say again, there's no need to talk about the thing to anyone else. We'll just keep it quiet between us. You can depend upon me, sir, declared Mrs. Hopper. But did you ever? It's come upon me so sudden-like. And what'll Olchin say? Why, he'll think I'm having a game with him. To this point had Will Warburton brought himself, urged by conscience and fear. Little by little, since the afternoon when he gazed at Boxon's closed shop, had this purpose grown in his mind, until he saw it as a possibility— a desirability, a fact. By shopkeeping, he might hope to earn sufficient for supply of the guaranteed income to his mother and sister, and at the same time be no man's servant. 
His acquaintance with Orchin enabled him to disregard his lack of grocery experience. With Orchin for an assistant, he would soon overcome initial difficulties. Only to Godfrey Sherwood had he communicated his project. What difference is there, he wrote, between selling sugar from an office in Whitechapel and selling it from behind a counter in Fulham Road? And Sherwood, who was still reposing in North Wales, wrote a long, affectionate, admiring reply. You are splendid. What energy. What courage. I could almost say that I don't regret my criminal recklessness, seeing that it has given the occasion for such a magnificent display of character. He added, Of course, it will only be for a short time. Even if the plans I am now working out, detailed shortly, come to nothing, a very likely thing, I am sure to recover my £10,000 in a year or so. Of course, he wrote in a postscript, I breathe no word of it to any mortal. This letter, so are we made, did Warburton good. It strengthened him in carrying through the deception of his relatives and of Mr. Turnbull, for he saw himself as Splendida Mendax. In Sherwood's plans and assurances, he had no shadow of faith, but Sherwood's admiration was worth having, and it threw a gliding upon the name of Grocer. Should he impart the secret to Norbert Franks? That question he could not decide just yet. In any case, he should tell no one else. All other acquaintances must be content, if they cared to inquire, with vague references to an agency, or something of the sort. Neither his mother nor Jane ever came to London. For them, his change of address to a poorer district would have no significance. In short, London being London, it seemed perfectly feasible to pass his life in a grocer's shop without the fact becoming known to anyone from whom he wished to conceal it. The rent of the shop and house was £85, an increase upon that paid by Boxon. Plant was estimated at 125, the stock at 150, and the goodwill at around 100. This made a total of 460 pounds, leaving Warburton some couple of hundred for all the expenses of his start. The landlord had consented to do certain repairs, including a repainting of the shop, and this work had already begun. Not a day must be lost. Will knew that the first half year would decide his fate as a tradesman. Did he come out at the end of six months with sufficient profit to pay a bare three percent? on the St. Knott's money, all would be safe and well. If the balance went against him, why, then the whole battle of life was lost, and he might go hide his head in some corner even more obscure. Of course, he counted largely on the help of Orchin. Orchin, though pig-headed and pugnacious, had a fair knowledge of the business, to which he had been bred, and of business matters in general always talked shrewdly. Unable, whatever his own straits, to deal penuriously with anyone, Will had thought out a liberal arrangement, whereby all the dwelling part of the house should be given over, rent-free, to Orchin and his wife, with permission to take one lodger, the assistant to be paid a small salary and a percentage on shop takings when they reached a certain sum per month. This proposal, then, he said before the muscular man on his presenting himself this afternoon. Orchin's astonishment at the story he had heard from Mrs. Hopper was not less than that of the woman herself. With difficulty persuaded to sit down, he showed a countenance in which the gloom he thought decorous struggled against jubilation on his own account, and Warburton had not talked long before his listener's features irresistibly expanded in a happy grin. "'How would something of this kind suit you?' asked Will. "'Me, sir?' Orchin slapped his leg. "'You ask how it suits me?' His feelings were too much for him. He grew very red and could say no more. "'Then suppose we settle it. I've written out the terms of your engagement. Read and sign.' Orchin pretended to read the paper, but obviously paid no attention to it. He seemed to be struggling with some mental obstacle. "'Something you want to alter?' asked Warburton. "'Why, sir, you've altogether forgot as I'm in your debt. 
It stands to reason as you must take that money out before you begin to pay me anything. Oh, we won't say anything more about that trifle. We're making a new beginning. But look here, Orchin, I don't want you to quarrel with me as you do with everyone else. With you, sir? Ho, ho, ho. Orchin guffawed and at once looked ashamed of himself. I quarrel, he added, with people as are insulting or as try to best me. It goes against my nature, sir, to be insulted and to be bested. They talked about the details of the business, and presently Orchin asked what name was to be put over the shop. I've thought of that, answered Will. What do you say to Jollyman? The assistant was delighted. He repeated the name a dozen times, snorting and choking with appreciation of the joke. Next morning, they met again and went together to look at the shop. Here, Orchin made great play with his valuable qualities. He pointed out the errors and negligences of the late Boxon, declared it a scandal that a business such as this should have been allowed to fall off, and was full of ingenious ideas for a brilliant opening. Among other forms of inexpensive advertisement, he suggested that, for the first day, a band should be engaged to play in the front room over the shop, with the windows open, and he undertook to find amateur bandsmen who would undertake the job on very moderate terms. Not many days elapsed before the old name had disappeared from the house front, giving place to that of Jollyman. Whilst this was being painted up, Orchin stood on the opposite side of the way, watching delightedly. When I think as the name used to be Boxon, he exclaimed to his employer, why, I can't believe as any money was ever made here. Boxon, why, it was enough to drive customers away. If you ever heard a worse name, sir, for a shopkeeper, I should be glad to be told of it. But Jollyman, why, it'll bring people from Putney, from Battersea, from who knows how far. Jollyman's teas, Jollyman's sugar. Can't you hear him saying it already? It's a fortune in itself, the name. Why, sir, if a grocer called Boxon came at this moment and offered to take me into a partnership on half profits, I wouldn't listen to him. There. Naturally, all this did not pass without many a pang in Warperton's sensitive spots. He had set his face like brass, or tried to do so, but in the night season he could all but have shed tears of humiliation as he tossed on his comfortless pillow. The day was spent in visits to wholesale grocery establishments, in study of trade journals, in calculating innumerable petty questions of profit and loss. When nausea threatened him, when all but horror of what lay before him assailed his mind, he thought fixedly of the whores, and made a picture to himself of that peaceful little home, devastated by his own fault. And to think that all this sweat and misery arose from the need of gaining less than a couple of hundred pounds a year. Life at the whores, a life of refinement and goodness and tranquillity such as can seldom be found, demanded only that a sum which the wealthy vulgar throw away upon the foolish amusement of an hour. Warburton had a tumultuous mind on reflecting on these things, but the disturbance was salutary, bearing him through trials of nerve and patience and self-respect which he could not otherwise have endured. Warburton had now to find cheap lodgings for himself, unfurnished rooms in some poor quarter not too far from the shop. At length, in a new little street of very red brick, not far from Fulham Palace Road, at the Hammersmith End, he came upon a small house which exhibited in its parlour window a card inscribed, Two unfurnished rooms to be let to single gentlemen only. The precision of this notice made him hopeful, and a certain cleanliness of aspect in the woman who opened to him was an added encouragement. But he found negotiations not altogether easy. The landlady, a middle-aged widow, seemed to regard him with some peculiar suspicion. Before even admitting him to the house, she questioned him closely as to his business, his present place of abode, and so on, 
and Warburton was all but turning away in impatience when at last she drew aside and cautiously invited him to enter. Further acquaintance with Mrs. Wick led him to understand that the cold misgiving in her eye, the sour rigidity of her lips, and her generally repellent manner were characteristics which meant nothing in particular, save as they resulted from a more or less hard life amid London's crowd. At present, the woman annoyed him, and only the clean freshness of her vacant rooms induced him to take the trouble of coming to terms with her. "'There's one thing I must say to you quite plain to begin with,' remarked Mrs. Wick, whose language, though not disrespectful, had a certain bluntness. "'I can't admit female visitors, not on any excuse.' Speaking thus, she set her face at its rigidest and sourest, and stared past Warburton at the wall. He, unable to repress a smile, declared his perfect readiness to accept this condition of tenancy. "'Another thing,' pursued the landlady, "'is that I don't like late hours.' And she eyed him as one might a person caught in flagrant crapulence at one o'clock a.m. "'Why, neither do I,' Will replied. "'But for all that, I may be obliged to come home late now and then.' "'From the theatre, I suppose?' "'I very seldom go to the theatre.' Mrs. Wick looked sanguine for an instant, but at once relapsed into darker suspicion than ever. "'But as to my hour of returning home, I must have entire liberty.' The woman meditated, profound gloom on her brows. "'You haven't told me,' she resumed, shooting a glance of keen distrust, "'exactly what your business may be.' "'I'm in the sugar line,' responded Will. "'Sugar? You wouldn't mind giving me the name of your employers?' The words so rasped on Warburton's sensitive temper that he seemed about to speak angrily. This, the woman observed, and added at once, "'I don't doubt but that you're quite respectable, sir, "'but you can understand as I have to be careful "'who I take into my house.' "'I understand that, "'but I must ask you to be satisfied "'with a reference to my present landlord. "'That and a month's payment in advance ought to suffice.' "'Evidently it did, "'for Mrs. Wick, after shooting one or two more of her sharpest looks, "'declared herself willing to enter into discussion of details. "'He required attendance, did he? "'Well, it all depended upon what sort of attendance he expected.' If he wanted cooking at late hours, Warburton cut short these anticipatory objections and made known that his wants were few and simple. Plain breakfast at eight o'clock, cold supper on the table when he came home, a midday meal on Sundays, and the keeping of his rooms in order. That was all. After morose reflection, Mrs. Wick put off her demand for rooms and service at a pound a week, but to this Warburton demurred. It cost him agonies to debate such a matter— but, as he knew very well, the price was excessive for unfurnished lodgings, and need constrained him. He offered fifteen shillings, and said he would call for Mrs. Wick's decision on the morrow. The landlady allowed him to go to the foot of the stairs, then stopped him. "'I wouldn't mind taking fifteen shillings,' she said, "'if I knew it was for a permanency. I can't buy myself more than by the month. Would you be willing to leave a deposit?' So the matter was settled, and Warburton arranged to enter into possession that day week. Without delay, the shop repairs were finished, inside and out. Orders for stock were completed. In two days, as a great bill on the shutters announced, Jollyman's grocery stores would be open to the public. Orchin pleaded strongly for the engagement of the brass band. It wouldn't cost much, and the effect would be immense. Warburton shrugged, hesitated, gave way, and the band was engaged. End of chapter 18. Recording by Sabrina Jazz Ainsworth.